In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In the Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In the Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Thank you for tuning in to In the Pocket. I'm your host, Flo Edwards, and our special guest today is Moon. Uh, she is a public speaker, a poet, um, and a South Sudan activist, and many, many other things. So I'm going to let Moon introduce herself. Hello, everyone. My name is, well, my full name is Nimun Wine Mushar, but those I love and those that love me also call me Moon. Um, and I am so excited to be here today and get to know a little bit more about myself as I tell you. Whoa, that's deep. You're getting to know more about yourself as you tell us. I don't think anyone's ever like said I that. Yes. I'm a poet, I don't disappoint. You do not disappoint. Uh, finger snap, finger snap. <laughs> so you are so busy, um, and that's an awesome thing. I really enjoyed this documentary called um, From Away, and it was just really amazing. It was it had all the notes. It was humor. It was sadness. Uh, it just hit every emotion that you should hit in a documentary. Um, you must feel really good that you were a part of this major thing. Yeah, I do. I do. And it's funny because when, when you're going through it, it just seems like the mundane human experience. And then when you see it all in front of you and you actually get to experience the strength and the voice of the people involved, it kind of it motivates me, even though I was there, you know, during the development. And I had so much to do with the ideas and, and the people we interviewed, um, watching it all come together and seeing the reaction of the community, I think, really strengthened but kind of my my why. And was this a year or two year project? How long? Ooh, we started before COVID, so it, it was from another world. It started in another world. So um, we started in 2019 um, and then COVID kind of slowed it down. Um, and then recent events that happened in the community that we really thought would be important to um, put in the film kind of made it something that turned into something like much larger because at first it was only supposed to be just like a 15 20 minute documentary um specific to peer support and um you know helping um, young people transition from systems of care but then once we started seeing the climate change and the social climate change and the administration change uh, we thought it was very very important to make sure that we got a diverse amount of voices um involved and included in it and I think you guys did amazing with that and almost makes me want to say how awesome that the pandemic happened. Right? There's the silver lining. 
Don't get people mad. Uh, I should feel bad about saying that, but I don't. I think in life, you're supposed to look for the silver linings. Like, you gotta do, you gotta get that lemonade out of your lemons. Absolutely, absolutely. Maybe sometimes with some tequila in it. Amen to that. Speaking of tequila, do you have a brand that you like? Are there, there's a lot of tasting spots here. Have you tried? Yes, there are. I'm really into Espelon. It's kind of my favorite uh, tequila. And it's funny because I, I once was about just following the rest of the crowd, always going for Patron. And a really wise bartender told me that that was just about marketing. And yes, it's, it's so disappointing. I'm like, I feel like they, they took a lot of my funds, <laughs> my status. So yeah, I'm, I was pretty glad to, to get that information. So now I'm okay. I'm okay with Hornitos. You can get those Hornitos. Hornitos is my go-to. I'm not a big, I don't know a lot about tequila. Um, so yeah. tell me a little bit about the one that you like. What do you know about it? Um, I believe it's George Clooney's. Correct, I might be wrong. Oh. If people might get right. And so, um, but it's just, I love how smooth it is. Um, I really, and what I love most about tequila is that there's not a lot of artificial sugar. It comes from agape, it's kind of more natural. Um, and so it kind of gives you a break off of the hangover also. Um, and I mean, who doesn't love tequila? Yeah, people who've gotten in trouble on tequila don't like tequila. <laughs> it's so funny because every song about tequila always comes with regret, doesn't it? Well, you need to write a song. You need to change that. I'm going to change that. You know, it's all about changing the narrative. All yeah. about changing the narrative. Uh, you're like the second black woman who has recommended George Clooney's tequila. <sighs> George Clooney got us, all right? Because when he came, because he did some work in South Sudan, he did a lot of activist work in South Sudan, especially in the early stages of of when the civil war erupted. Um, And he really outed a lot of corruption that was going on. And so I thought it was just incredible. And the fact that his wife is an an amazing, you know, humanitarian lawyer, just, he got got all the chips right now. You know, he got all the chips and, and, you know, he's not bad to look at still. So Silver Fox, we'll take it, we'll take it. Right on. I, I only can hope to be a silver fox like George Clooney one day. Um, <laughs> so I didn't realize he was an activist with South Sudan. Um, tell us a little bit about your activism for that uh, region. Absolutely. Yes. So I um, my, my father came from South Sudan and South Sudan is now I think, the second newest country because I believe Barbados has became um, their own entity. Um, but the, the, they have always kind of been flooded to conflict. Um, at first it was when, before Sudan split, it was the North um, Arab influence coming down the Nilotic people of the South. And so my father's childhood was inundated with just war and crisis. So that's a lot of what he remembers. And it really created a lot of mental health issues that I'm able to see now and understand in hindsight it's because of the experiences that he has but it's been so normalized in um, his community and in many immigrant communities that I knew that it was really important for me to start putting voice to it and giving space um, to pray to break generational curses um, to kind of dismantle 
pieces that we have taken on to be tradition but are actually very harmful to our community and a lot of that is silence it's about silent suffering um and so what i what i started to do is um i was a victim of um uh, sexual abuse as a child and i saw firsthand how dangerous that one piece of culture of silence and the modesty culture around it could be and i knew there's a lot of other people suffering so i said you know what if i'm going to do anything i'm going to be the voice to make other people feel like it's okay and a piece of that is also working on my own mental health and getting myself to a healthier place so that i could speak from a strength-based place and show that there is strength in being vulnerable um, and so once i started doing that I got connected with the Luol Deng Foundation that does incredible work trying to connect people um, in the yeah, South Sudanese in the diaspora, um, especially in the recent wars that have happened between the two warring um, tribes, the Nuer and the Dinka. Um, and they approached me about kind of running the mental health liaison of the, of the organization. So every year we would have these huge events where we would get different uh, South Sudanese professionals and youth come together and have that conversation. And it, and it is about, you know, the sexual abuse in our community. It is about the mental health. It is about the domestic violence. It is about the survivorship and um, what that means when we have carried the trauma for so long. And we already have this innate fear of elders. And so we, we are, we're always silent when they, when we, you know, and, and, and unfortunately that has allowed them to kind of um, keep this wheel, this unhealthy toxic wheel going. And so it's about how do we bridge those conversations between the young people and the elders, but still hold such reverence for that beautiful part of our culture of honoring um, our elders and a piece of it is healing them um, through being strong enough to tell them, hey, this is wrong, this is hurting us, this is what we feel needs to change. Um, so it's been an, an incredible, incredible journey, and it has brought me so much strength um, and and kind of added to my own healing process, watching other young people um, heal from now seeing the, that, that, that conversation that was always so embarrassing and hidden, stigmatized um, on such a large platform. And so I really do appreciate that, the, the Wall Dang Foundation, and I got the Diaspora Award from them that really helped me to be able to kind of have a door and, 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 a, and a larger platform to be able to speak towards the, the, the pieces that I'm really passionate about and I want to see change in my community. Well, congratulations on the Diaspora Thank Award. Thank you. Yeah, what are, so when people, for example, you win in this award, besides the award, what came with that? Yeah, um, I think it, it's more like the platform also. Walding is a hero. If you, um, like in, and we do have a lot of NBA players going into, um, we have a lot of suits, you know, young South Sudanese men going into the NBA, but to watch him come back and use his, you know, his theater to be able to pull up people that he knows are really working hard um, for a certain cause, um, really helped me to be able to open doors and have that peace. And I was able to connect with people in Australia, um, with young people in Europe, in China, um, back in South Sudan and East Africa, and all these different places where that diaspora has been dispersed to because of the crisis in our country. It has brought us unity. And it's funny that you say that the COVID is the best thing that could have happened because what we've learned now is that there's so much technology um, that we had to seek out in order to continue to connect. And it has brought such a larger audience 
for us because we are now more accessible. Um, if you can't come physically to the places where we're doing these events, um, we have that, you know, the video capacity and we have the Zooms and we have, you know, the, the conferences that we could do virtually um, that still helps people be engaged and be able to actually see the faces and get to know people and now as we live in a world of, of you know social media um so there's this constant connection and so my inbox is always always filling and i love it with people wanting to tell me about their story or ask me you know if like what my roadmap was and you know and and, and then how i i came to to a space of, of of being brave enough to talk about the things that has hurt me um in a community that often tries to silence it wow Thank you for sharing that. Um, and good to hear that technology has been so handy to keep Amazing. you thriving. Yes. Yeah. And helping people. I love that. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to dive into you are doing conferences. I believe you have one coming up this February. Is that also going to yes. be virtual? Are you going to be there? Nope, that's also going to be virtual. We do call it a lunch table. Um, it's by um, an artist named Toto uh, Kisako, um, and he's doing this electric chair uh, uh, performance um, through Portland Innovations. And it's going to be me and other local artists from Portland coming around and talking about the merging of artistry and activism and why it's so important. Um, I, I, I always say my second language is poetry. Um, you know, I, I started to lose a little bit of my, my native. Um, so it, it's English than poetry because poetry became the way that I was able to start to speak um, about the things that were hurting me when it was very, very hard for me to just, you know, uh, narrate it in plain text. I was able to use metaphors and, and you know, and, and name lions and, um, you know, and, and the dark forests that I was traveling through in my mind. Um, and still create and be able to, to express an emotion that comes with it because fear is something that everyone can understand. Shame is something that everyone can understand. And so when I was able to put these metaphors in to my words, it gave me you know, a, a way of being able to kind of have my own language um, and, and, what, and, and, ha and how I tell my story. And that was through poetry. Awesome. Um when you well thank you for being a veteran i thought i'd throw that yes. out there yeah. um, had you already been writing poetry before the coast guard oh yeah the national guard, national um, guard. and no i started i started writing so i went through my uh, my abuse started when i was eight years old um and funny enough that's the first time i've ever told this story um do you remember the show as told by ginger I'm gonna be like, yeah, I'm going to really age myself. But it was this show and that I watched, um, and it was one of the early shows that I watched when I first moved here um, from Africa. And I saw this, this it was like, a, like a, maybe a 30 second snippet of a poem that was about, you know, a bird flying away or something and being tied down by string. And it just spoke to so much of the darkness that was going on to me. And I was like, what is this thing? Like what is what is this person like? What is this person doing? What is that rhyme? What is? And I just fell in love, and so I would say that I started writing when I was eight. Man, do you still have some of your writings from that time? I do, I do, I do. Nice. And it's funny because now I'm just like, oh, it's so abstract. Look at my little genius, you know? Because I I have a, a poem called Dear Child, and it was kind of like a love letter that I wrote to myself. 
um, during the times that I really didn't like myself and I hated myself and, and asking for that forgiveness. And now that I, you know, I, I see the things that I was writing when I was younger, it's it's incredible. And I've fallen in love with, you know, even the, the that little girl that was in that darkness that that was like that felt like she was really ugly and really unwanted and was able to, to hug her, you know, like in the in the, the the pieces and places in my mind that I go back there to visit her. Wow. Have you do you feel like you still write in the same fashion? No, um yes and no. Yes and no. Um I see that there's a piece of me that always likes to either put some sort of comedy or some sort of jab um in, in, in my poems. And it might not seem that way to others, but to me I know why a certain line is in there the way that it is. Um, you know, and so when I when I when I when I read back to the poems that I, when I was younger, I saw it was there's a lot of despair, um, and there was a lot of anger, and this is one of the reasons why I really started speaking about how the mental health system really needs to rise to to have a, a, a better understanding that you cannot be an expert of trauma and leave from that space, that trauma translates into different cultures and communities. Um, because when I was writing my poetry, I had one poetry where I was, you know, it, it was really dark. I was talking about, you know, cutting male parts and, and I was really, really angry. And, you know, and, it, and it's something, and it was for me, it was a realness to me. And I had every right to be as angry. And, and, and I, you know, when you think about Edgar Allen, when you think about all these different, uh, Maya Angelou, the they, are, they, are, they have the right to be angry in their pieces. Um, and so I had the right to be angry in my piece until I came to a healing place. And, but I, what I remember when I, when I, a therapist had asked to look at my notebook and from my notebook and from that poem, from different poems, their response was met to, to try to medicate me and to start these, these diagnoses and not understand that as an artist, that I'm okay with, with diving into the dark parts of me actually I think you know every breakup that I went through I'm always like thank you I'm about to get gold from this because I, I just I write better um in hardships I write better in heartbreak I am a lover of the human experience all the experiences of it and being able to give it life and light because once you take it out from someone and you give them a representation of it on paper it helps them to be able to stare at it and to look at it and to hear it for themselves and that's what i did for myself that i you know dove into that darkness and now as i grow older and i start to care for much larger communities and more diverse communities and and have this 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 real thirst to understand my dad's plight and my parents plight about moving from this you know to an alien world almost um, I love to give them voice also. And so I have seen, and, and there's a lot more light, I think now in my poetry. Um, so there's, there's I, I can go into that darkness, but I always make sure that there's a piece of light in there or there's a piece of strength in there where I think that when I was younger and really deep in my, you know, in my darkness that it stayed kind of stagnant and dark. Um, I like that you try to add uh, lightness uh or humor into your work. When I look at paintings, yeah. I'm always looking for the light. Like I love when I find the light in the work. So uh, yes. the balance is real nice, so. Absolutely. Um, you, are you still with the telling room? 
I am. I'm actually starting now as a writing coach. So I work one-on-one um, with uh, the Young Writers and Leaders program, and I help them to develop their to develop their personal narratives. So I will always, always be um, in the Telling Room family because that is something that is so near and dear to my heart. And you've been with them, has it been like a decade now, or? Um, no, it seems like it though, right? No, I think it's like it's been like four years now that I've been with them. I don't know, I'm yeah. four years strong, that's yeah. cool. Yes, yes. And it seems like there's a lot of growth in that, in that business for you as professionally. Yeah, um, you mean in, in poetry or in? Well, it sounds like you're doing classes now, teaching classes, and maybe yeah. you weren't before. So it just seems like it's a job that is you can grow with. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, in, in, so right now, actually, in my in my current uh, profession, I work for the Multicultural Liaison for the Sexual Assault Response Program, um, and so that's that's my 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 main. And then the telling room stuff. I mean, even though like there's a paid component to it, it's kind of more of my heart and my passion, and it keeps me plugged in. Um, and it's it's funny because it's like I never thought anyone would be like, oh, come, we will pay you to come talk. I'm like, what? Okay, I can talk. <laughs> I talk all the time. And so it's been really exciting um, to see that people want to hear what you're saying because for so long, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and just kept it hidden. And then, you know, once I started sharing, all of a sudden I saw that it was really, really affecting people and really helping people to, you know, come out of that, that their, of their spaces or give light or give, you know, a, a summary and a narrative to what they're going through. Uh, so what were some of your first uh, or early speaking engagements? So my, I think my, my first one was Children's Mental Health Day. Um, or it was in D.C. Um, and I went there for uh, a national organization that did mental health work. Um, why? The, the name is escaping me. The acronym is escaping me. They're going to be so sad because they're they're an incredible, they're an incredible place. And um, uh, but I, I went down there to speak on a panel um, around uh, kind of the, the the racial equity component to the mental health uh, um, uh, system and um, the policy development around it. And for me, you know, I had a real huge issue with um, assessment tools, especially you know when because I was I was. I, before this, I was working with Youth Move Maine where we had to give young people surveys to fill out. And I knew my community and I knew, you know, young people that, that had the same backstory as my father and came from crisis areas. And looking through, I'm like, there's, you cannot gain insight from this, these type of questions that were geared for a more Western audience. And you're collecting the wrong data to make huge decisions that determine funding, that determine, you know, um, the program development, that, that determine um, uh, pieces that which can actually change a person's life. And so I thought it was really, really important to do the work to get to know a community um, and understand what information is important for you to, to um, uh, retract from them in order to be more informed about what helps and what harms. I guess I've never really seen any assessment tools for that, but have, did you make some progress in that endeavor? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, like any organization I go to, I always like look at the surveys that we give 
folks, um, you know, and I sat on the on the board for Maine Behavioral, and so I was able to kind of meet and talk with the quality improvement um, team and 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 see that there's you know like like okay, so we're we're not doing very good in the cultural. Um, uh, you know, the cultural competency piece of the uh, cultural consideration. So how do we change that and how, you know, and how could we start to address some of the, the pieces that people are, are the, the information they're giving us back? And are we asking the right questions? You know, I think that that's what's really important. It's very, very hard when there's already a set number in, uh, of, of questions on there and it has nothing to do with what you want to share about the things that is harming you. And so you're just answering some generalized uh, questions and that is going to give someone insight on, like you know to who you are and you know that these are not you're asking all the wrong questions so i've become very passionate about and, I, and i'm lucky enough to to have um you know incredible mentors and, and giants whose shoulders i stand on that's you know still call on me for um kind of my 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 expertise around the lived experience of, of immigrant and disproportionate communities and what i think is is a, is a really more effective way of, of allowing them to come to the table and talk to you about what helps them and what harms them. Sounds like you've been doing some really good work. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. Um, is there anything you would like to share with the ITP community that we haven't touched upon? Um, I think that especially now that we have such a large um, community of asylum seekers and the 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 new mainer for lack of better terms <laughs> i hate that term i was like okay i hate it too i, hate it too. <laughs> I was like so who's the old mainer I'm like what about how many years i have to be here to be the old mainer um but but i i think that there's there's so much to understand um, about like what uh, an addition, what a compliment, what an incredible opportunity it is to invite community members that have really tested out the limits of human resilience. Um, and all of these people that, that are coming to our communities are coming because they want to enrich it. And I would love to, to, you know, to not hear that that rhetoric anymore. That you know, they're they're coming to rob or steal or. And in the documentary, you'll see that I touch a lot on it. That my dad's first piece of what he wanted to do was start to really give back to this community. He wanted to work. He wanted to actually build economy. And so there is benefits to, to what is happening. And I hope that people see it as a celebration. Um, I, I also am being a vet and understanding the plights of, of a home, the homelessness that, that happens not only with, with vets, but our, our, our local community members. That's something that we all need to come together and put our heads together for. I don't think it, it, it benefits anyone to pit one group against another or, or put a certain like prestige in, in one one plight than, than the other um it, it doesn't help anyone and so i would love to start seeing more folks thinking about how to collaborate um and really learn from each other and and come together and, and realize that this is a battle that we all should be facing together rather than you know pointing at who's who's to blame or because these are they're, they're all vulnerable and so yeah Oh, that's so good mentioning the homeless and yeah. just being a community, helping each yeah. other out. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So I know you have an amazing mural, uh, I think on the side of Rising Tide, but <laughs> if people would like to get in touch with you, reach you, what's the plug? The plug, um, the best place to reach me, I would say, is on Instagram. And like, as you see me, I'm going to like, look at my Instagram to make sure it's the right name. Um, so it's Moonski, M-O-O-N-S-K-I-E, double underscore. Right on. And you have, where can people watch your documentary? So my documentary will be screening on uh, PBS, February 17th and the 20th. So I believe on February 17th, it's at 9 p.m. And then on the 20th, it's at 2 p.m. Awesome. And um, that conference for the electric chair requiem? That will be January 20th at 12 p.m. And if you go on my Instagram and if you look at the link in my bio, you'll have the registration. If you also go on the Portland Innovation page, they also have the registration link there also. Great. Um, am I missing anything else coming up? No, I I think you, well, I think that there's, there's one and I, I'm not sure. If you are so inclined and um, there's a uh, 2022, it's an innovation conference honoring whole person care and recovery in communities of color. And so I will be on a panel speaking on that also. Um, and if you go, like I said, on my Instagram, I, I, I keep it pretty up to date. And that will be February 17th, 14th through the 17th. And so it's a series, but my series specifically is on the 17th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And it's a virtual event. So you can also find um, the registration links there. Awesome. Uh, you just stay busy. I love it. It's great. Bossing yeah. up. <laughs> Girl boss. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show.